Okay. Good morning. Shannon had her coffee this morning, so <laughs> thankful for that. And Amy's sarcasm uh, that she has up here is her survival mode for working on staff at the church, just so you know. If you work with me, you have to have a sense of humor and uh, take a punch, and she can do both. So, Hey, uh, as they mentioned, my name's Jesse, and I'm part of the pastoral team here. I want to welcome you. Thank you for uh, being here. If you're visiting or uh, if you're uh, checking out Christianity for the first time, we're just really glad and blessed that you're here. We're in the Gospel of Mark, so if you want to go ahead and turn uh, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, please do so. If you don't have a Bible uh, and you want to use one of ours, you can. If you don't own a Bible and you would like to own a Bible, you can take this one with you as well. Uh, and <clears throat> this uh, particular book, so you are aware, 41 times in this book, 41 times the word immediately is used. Uh, and the gospel is written in, in a way, in a sense, with an air of breathlessness. It moves fast and it moves rapidly. Uh, if you're a comic book guy like I was back in the day, this is the kind of book for you. If you're exploring Christianity, this is a great place to understand who Jesus is uh, because it was written to a Roman audience, a Gentile audience. Uh, those, that's to say, those who were Jews who didn't understand the Old Testament prophecies didn't mean a whole lot to them from the Old Testament. So this is a great book to be introduced to who uh, Jesus is. Uh, and, and this morning, I've taken a big chunk, in part on purpose, uh, of, of Scripture here. So we're actually going to walk through verses 9 all the way to verse 45 of chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1. And, and, and it's on purpose, in part, and if the, if the preaching this morning seems like it has an air of breathlessness to it and that a lot is being covered and I'm speaking fast, that is in part uh, on purpose. I know I speak fast as it is anyways. Uh, but this book is to, to help us see that Jesus is just moving very fast and very rapidly. Uh, and here we're going to see Jesus declare war on the evil empire, if you will. So there's a Star Wars reference for you heathens that watch Star Wars. Um, <clears throat> a declaration of war on the evil empire, on Satan himself. So the title of the message this morning, the way that I've tagged uh, this message, is a declaration of war, life is a battle. Uh, and I've kind of got three headings in which we'll tackle. One is a declaration of the sun. We're going to see uh, another, as we did last week, another declaration of who this Jesus is. And then we're going to see Jesus face-to-face -face in declaration of war against Satan himself. And then we will see declarations of victory or demonstrations of victory to show that Jesus truly is victorious in life's battle. Two things I think are true, and I think you would agree with me on this, in life. One is that life has a way of feeling like a battle. In fact, Scripture actually tells us that when you become a Christian, you become painfully aware of the war that exists within yourself, the war of the flesh and the spirit. In fact, Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, would say that he doesn't even understand why he does the things he knows he shouldn't do and why he, he doesn't do the things he knows he should do. He proclaims within his own self that he knows that the sinful nature that exists within him is at war with the spiritual nature of being born again that exists within him. So if you're a Christian, you should be aware of that tension, right? You, you know that you have been forgiven of sin, yet you still sin. Just making sure you're all humans here this morning. Right? We know that to be the reality. Scripture actually goes on to tease out this idea of war, not only within ourselves, but Scripture says we are literally at war with Satan himself, and we're at war with the spirit of the world, uh, that we're at war with the world itself, the, uh, the, the ideologies of the world and the culture of the world pressing in around us. And sometimes we can become exhausted from this war, this, this battle that we live, and it can become tiring. And sometimes we actually think that we're actually at war with people when the Bible says we're not. We're actually at war with the principalities in the spiritual realm and that people are not our enemy, but rather Satan himself is the enemy. So that's the first thing that's really true about life. It, it can feel like a, a war. It can feel like a battle. We're going to see in the text this morning that Jesus understands that and that he's victor, victorious in that battle. The other thing I think we can realize about life for most of us in the room, I think, is how incredibly fast it moves. 
Like I mentioned before, 41 times the book uses the word immediately. The book is written in a sense to, to help, <coughs> excuse me, to help us see how fast the life of Christ moves, that he's here one moment, he dies on the cross, and then he ascends to the Father in heaven very quickly. And life is fast. It, literally, the Bible says that life is like a vapor, right? It's just there, and then it's gone, and it dissipates, and it disappears. Those of you who have graduated children from high school, uh, I've heard many of you say to meet myself with four young kids, enjoy the time you have, because tomorrow it'll be, they'll be gone. It wasn't that long ago that I actually remember when, you know, my parents got saved here at Sierra Bible Church, and, and I was the, the one kid in the church at the time that did not grow up in a Christian home. And so when I came to youth group, uh, I wasn't always well-behaved, and so I was, I was the kid that always uh, was causing trouble. I was the kid that, that all the, the little homeschool kids would, would tell on me, you know, and uh, I hated those homeschool kids. When I, <laughs> they were all so perfect. And I was so jacked up. And um, that, you know, that, and, and literally in this building, I remember destroying pieces of this building uh, as a kid, which is crazy because yesterday I'm, you know, raking pine needles up and fixing this building. It's a great contrast, but it's fast. Things move quick. And, and Mark here, it, that's the reality. We're going to move quick. We're going to move fast, but we're going to see life as a battle and we're going to see Jesus as victorious in this battle of life. And so if you have the ability this morning and the desire to do so, would you stand with me as we just read a few of these verses? We will not read all 45, uh, but we will read uh, several here. <clears throat> Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him in the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Lord, we pray the gospel would be real to us this morning, that the person of Jesus, that the work of Jesus, the power of Jesus would be made real and manifest amongst us this morning. We trust you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, Amen. You be seated. To emphasize the just the vast amount of time that's covered just in chapter one, if you take a, a little bit of a closer look, you'll notice that Jesus finds himself in several different locations. First, we see we're introduced to the person of Jesus after John the Baptist has prepared the way, proclaiming a message and proclaiming a baptism of repentance of sins. On the heels of that, Jesus is introduced to us being baptized in the Jordan River. This is the first place that we see Jesus. He's here in the Jordan. Then, immediately after the baptism, he's drawn into the wilderness. After that, he finds himself proclaiming the gospel to some disciples that they would follow him over by the Sea of Galilee. Then later, we find him in Capernaum in the city. And to that point, he then moves to a desolate place to remove himself from the crowds of people. And then after that, the rest of chapter 1 says he moved into the next towns. The Jordan River, the wilderness, the sea, the city, a desolate place, and then several other towns. That's all just in chapter 1. And the declaration that we see here, though, in regards to Jesus is simply this. He steps onto the scene. John the Baptist baptizes him against John the Baptist's will, if you will. If you remember, John said, one is coming after me. One who's more important than I am is coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie this dude's sandals. And yet Jesus shows up, says, you have to baptize me. There's a little bit of an argument there. And then John is obedient, and he baptizes Jesus. Upon that baptism of Jesus, the text tells us that as Christ came out of the water in baptism, the Spirit fell upon Jesus like a dove, and then the declaration of God comes from heaven, this is my Son, 
with whom I am well pleased. I think a couple questions need to arise here. Why in the world is Jesus being baptized? It has to be a question you have to answer. Because if you remember when John the Baptist preached his particular baptism, what was his preaching? Be baptized for the repentance and the remission of sins. Now, we all know, if we understand Christ, that Jesus is without sin, and there is no sin upon him. So what in the world is Jesus doing being baptized in the Jordan River by a sinful man for what would have seemed like the remission of sins? We know that Jesus does not have any sin upon him. He has not sinned. So what is he doing? A couple answers here. First and foremost, this is God's way of declaring to us that Jesus is the son of god and that jesus is starting his public ministry now this is the place in where the spirit opens up the heavens god the father speaks this is the introduction to jesus this is the start of jesus's public ministry that's the first thing just just a marker if you will a a big yellow highlighter if you will jesus begins to intervene in the world here the second thing is what theologians call that, or, or, or rather, what theologians teach and what, what Bible teachers teach is that this is Jesus' way of showing that he's entering into humanity, though he has no sin. It's Jesus' way of saying that he identifies with sinners. One passage of Scripture says it like this, in understanding what Jesus understands about us. That Jesus knows this war that we have. He understands the impacts of sin. He understands the heaviness of sin. He understands the heaviness of life. Uh, This is how it says it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we would become the righteousness of God. Amen, hallelujah. He who knew no sin enters into the humanity of sin on our behalf blanketed in our sin, blanketed in our unrighteousness on the cross, that we would become the righteousness of God. The great theologian and writer Mark Deaver says it like this, the baptism of Jesus here is the beginning of his humiliation as he faithfully submits to the Father's will and willingly identifies himself with sinful humanity. This is the next quote in line here which carries the emphasis of why Jesus is being baptized. It is no more odd for Jesus to be baptized in the Jordan River than for him to hang on the cross at Calvary as the sinless and spotless Son of God. This is Jesus who is the servant, the servant of God and even the servant of humanity to step in on our behalf and to say, guess what? When it comes to death and when it comes to pain, when it comes to be buried in a tomb, I know what that is like, and I have conquered that by being resurrected. That's what baptism shows us, to die with Christ, to be buried with Christ, to live with Christ. And then God the Father declares his approval of his son as he speaks, tearing open the heavens. He says, this is my son, my beloved son. Again, as we shared last week, this is God's way of saying, Jesus is my co-eternal and my co-equal. Here we see at Jesus' baptism, the entirety of the Trinity is here at the baptism. The Son is baptized, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends. We're told in Scripture that all of the Trinity is involved in our salvation. God planned it in the eternity past. He makes salvation possible here in the Gospels, and the Holy Spirit seals us for salvation in the future. Now, what's interesting about this word in verse 10, if you take a look... Again, if you're like me, I've kind of reintroduced myself to this habit of, of tattooing my Bible, putting marks in it and writing it and taking notes in it. My hope, actually, one day is that my sons and my daughter will one day be able to have my Bible when I pass from this life to the next and see Daddy's writing in the, the side margins as a love letter to them down the road. I write kind of like a doctor, so they probably won't understand it, but that's not the point. This word, verse 10, that's used, torn apart. It's an interesting word because Mark actually only uses this word twice in the gospel. The first time is here. The heavens are torn. The second time it's used is at the end of the book of Mark when Jesus is crucified and he dies on the cross. 
we're told there at the end of the gospel that the, the, the veil is torn in part. Literally, the darkness falls upon the land as he's crucified. There is an earthquake. The veil is torn. If you remember, that veil is what kept the unholy separate from the holy. Only if you were holy could you enter into the temple. And only the priest could do that after several ceremonial rituals to make himself clean. No one could just walk into that presence of God without being struck dead. And at the cross, we see this word torn being used. All of this is to share with us as the readers that Jesus Christ is the only one that gives us access to God. It is also sharing with us the emphasis that at this particular mark, that God the Father intervenes at the baptism and the cross of Jesus to show us that both of these events, the, the baptism of Jesus as well as the death of Jesus, are cosmic events with cosmic implications. God has literally rended the heavens asunder. To add to the emphasis of this, the prophet Isaiah hoped to see such a radical event. The prophets of old hoped to see the Messiah come. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, the prophet cries out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. The baptism and the death of Christ, this tearing apart, reminds us of the reality that Jesus, God, has come in the flesh to intervene on a cosmic level, declaring war against the cosmic evil and the cosmic powers of this present age. Jesus is telling us, God is telling us, it is now time for salvation. That declaration of the Son is quite heavy. It's used in several different places in the Old Testament. One place, Psalm 2, two uh, chapter 2, verse 7, that Jesus is the greater son of David. In Genesis 22, we're told of a son that needs to be sacrificed. And then in Isaiah 42, verse 1, we see this prophecy of a suffering servant, a suffering son on Christ's behalf. And then we see the climax of the suffering of the son in Isaiah 53, the beloved son is crushed on our behalf. Again, this is quite interesting. If you look back in the Old Testament in regards to the declaration of the Son and the different prophets of the Old Testament, you'll see that in the Old Testament, Abraham was called a friend of God. What a great title to be a friend of God. In Deuteronomy 34, verse 5, we're told that Moses is a servant of God. In Psalm, we're told that Aaron is called the chosen one of God. In 1 Samuel, David is a man after God's own heart. But here, And here alone, Jesus is called the Son of God. He's greater than a friend of God. He's greater than just a servant of God. He's greater than just the chosen one of God. He and he alone is the Son of God. Why is this so important? Because Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who has been baptized by John the Baptist, as the Spirit has opened up and the heavens have been torn open and declare that he is the Son of God, Likewise, Jesus came as the Son to make you and I children of God as well. This is exactly what it tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.18. It literally says that he, God, will be a father to us. And it goes on to say, you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Jesus is the firstborn, we are told. The firstborn of what? Believers, those of the faith, the first one to to become the, the son that we would become children of God. In this war, in this battle, you have been given the title son, daughter of Christ. How amazing is that? That's all to say that you are identified in the same way that Jesus is identified. This shows us couple things here I think that are important. One is that baptism is important. Jesus humbled himself to be baptized, and likewise, as Christians, you should humble yourself to be baptized. It is a declaration that you believe in the declaration of the Son. Is that hard to do? I know, I know a few people who don't want to be baptized because they're scared of doing it. It's not been more than once where I've had people come to me and say, hey, would you baptize me? And I go, yeah, let's do it. And they go, can we just go do it down at like a hot tub somewhere? Can we just go do it at a pool somewhere? And then I have to say, no, because that, that's the opposite of what baptism is. Baptism is a proclamation 
to people, to the world that you believe in Jesus. This is not a private event. This is a public event. But I'll feel so embarrassed. Well, imagine what Christ felt to enter into the baptism of humanity. We should take part in baptism. But I think you also should see the work that Christ has done in, 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 in regards to moving us towards becoming his own children. He has become the perfect son that we would be his children. And as the spirit has fallen on Jesus, the spirit of God is given to us as well, that we can live this life of battle. John Piper says of this particular event, he says, when Jesus was baptized along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trenches along with the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. See, at the advent of Christ here at this baptism, the Spirit falls upon Jesus to equip him, to strengthen him, to build him up, to make him confident, to bolster him for the battles that will come in the rest of Mark. And likewise, for us in life, we have to recognize that Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit to be effectual and victorious in all of the battles of life that are before us. And so to put this in a, a larger emphasis, to make this a bigger deal than, than we could ever think or imagine, we then come immediately after the baptism, where? To the wilderness. He moves from the Jordan River to a place of comfort, if you will, maybe with John the Baptist, another fellow soldier for the Lord's sake, and then immediately the same spirit that fell upon Jesus is the same spirit that moves him into this desolate place. We're told for how long? 40 days. 40 days, we're told, he has fasted, he has not eaten, and for 40 days, it says, he's being tempted by Satan, and he's in the wild with what? Wild animals. It's a short little piece of text, but it's just packed with all kinds of meat. The 40 days signify something that are really important for us to understand. It, it signifies that that first of all, it would take us back to the story of the people of Israel. For the people of Israel were taken out of their bondage and out of their sin to a desolate wilderness place for 40 years. And how did they do for 40 years? They complained and they grumbled. They had a lack of trust. They whined. They moaned. They bemoaned. Just trying to think of other words that sound like complaining. They continued, if you will, to lack of trust in God, though they saw miracles, though they saw manna from heaven. It reminds us of the chaos that occurred below Mount Sinai while Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. It reminds us also of Elijah on Mount Horeb for 40 days. What in the world is the connection between the 40 of the Old Testament and the 40 in the New Testament? Well, it's literally to show us that where all others have failed, Jesus is successful. Jesus is the better Israel. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Elijah. It's what some theologians call substitutionary temptation. Jesus enters into the desert to enter into temptation into a weak place, a place of fragility. He does not bemoan. He does not complain. He does not agonize. Rather, he fights on our behalf, and he comes out of that temptation completely victorious. Where you and I fail in temptation, Jesus has been perfect in that temptation. To add to the horror of this reality, the text tells us in verse 13, he's surrounded by wild animals. To the Roman readers, this would have heightened their understanding of the intensity of this moment. For the Roman historian Tactus wrote this about the wild Christians were covered with hides of wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs. 
As you know, Nero was literally throwing Christians into the lion's den. Literally, wild animals were tearing Christians apart. Here we see the Roman readers of this particular text who are being persecuted by Nero, persecuted by the culture, are being told that Jesus himself has gone into the wilderness around such wild animals, and he has come out unscathed from the event. It's another way of Jesus telling his readers and telling you and I, I know your struggle. I know your battle. I know what you're feeling. I know that life can feel like a war. Jesus is saying, I understand sin. I understand that you fall into sin. And I know that no matter how hard you try, you still fall into sin. I know when you don't want to be jealous, you still at times are jealous. And I know when you don't want your anger to arise, you allow your anger to arise. And this is why I've gone into the desert. Because I and I alone can defeat temptation. And likewise, the Spirit may drive us into wild places, but his helper will be with us. Amen? The same Spirit that fell upon Jesus at the baptism of Jesus, the same Spirit that drove him into the wilderness, is the same Spirit that's promised to believers today. It's the same Holy Ghost. It's the same same entity, the same part of the Trinity, the same person of God, that part of the Trinity that allows us to fight sin and even allows us to defeat sin to say no to sin. You know what separates us between us and the rest of the world? We can say no to sin sometimes. Not always. And we can say yes to righteousness. And I think likewise, there's a little bit of takeaway for us here to understand that, that not only will Jesus send us his Holy Spirit, but yes, indeed, like Jesus, he can even send his angels to minister to us. Oh, I don't want to be all charismatic and weird. And I know sometimes people go into those circles with those things and angels are all places and everywhere and they're praying to angels and all that. Don't pray to angels, that's bad. But if you see here in the contrast between the wild beast and the angels ministering to Jesus, Psalm chapter 34, verse seven says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. I mean, it is not a far stretch to think that that if you, especially if you look through the New Testament, that angels are real and that angels do minister to his people. There's even a place in the Bible that says, be careful how you serve and minister to certain people for you may be entertaining angels. Man, have you ever thought about that? I've had a few moments in my life where I thought, I wonder. And then they said something else and I was like, nope, it's not an angel. <laughs> Here we see within the wilderness the reality of what 1 John chapter 3 tells us, that the reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's to put literally all of those things that make our life suffering and sufferable, that Christ has come to mend them. Yesterday um, was a full day for my family, a full day for several of our church members. As we spent half the day cleaning our campus here, cutting down some trees and clearing things out. And you'd be surprised how many pine needles are back here. It's miraculous. And then later to go to the skate park and to join the group, the whosoevers, and to see the skate event that was put on and to see all these kids, most who don't know Jesus, most who've probably never been to church. And to see a pastor standing uh, at the altar of the skate park, if you will. Quite an entertaining thing. And for him to stand there and to proclaim the gospel to these young kids who've never heard the gospel before. And to share the historical reality of what these kids are facing. The, the whosoevers have a heart to, read our, uh, to reach our youth. The thoughts of suicide and cutting and depression and anxiety, all those things we know are through the roof and, and we cover them up with medication. It's no different than turning off the check engine light in your truck. You're not fixing the issue. You're just ignoring the light. For him to stand there and preach and to teach that the only way to truly feel or know this salvation is to know who Jesus is. He even shared the reality that Satan's after their souls. And here in the wilderness, we're seeing that Jesus Jesus is on marching orders from God the Father to destroy the works of the devil. 
to destroy the thoughts of suicide and depression and anxiety that exist in our culture. Jesus is saying, I know what it's like to be alone in the wilderness, which transitions us to the next part of the text. We have that declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the one that God the Father is pleased of because of who he is and his identity. He has been humbled to baptize, to be baptized, to show that he identifies us with sinners. And then he's been humbled into the wilderness and overcome 40 days of temptation while he has not eaten. Could you imagine fighting temptation, being on a hungry stomach for 40 days? Some of you can't do that on a full stomach. For some of you, the meal was your sin. Yet Jesus has conquered. And to declare that he's victorious, in the next segment, we see the impacts of where Christ is victorious. First, we see he comes to this place, Galilee. Galilee is an interesting place. The the Jews actually called it a sea, though it is mostly titled as a lake. Galilee, the lake of Galilee there, it's roughly about 12 and a half miles long, seven and a half miles wide, and it sits 600 some feet below sea level. This has become, it will become a place of of kind of a, a base place for Jesus to do ministry. The waters are warm here, and the, the, the particular lake is teeming with fish. And the first thing we see in the demonstrations of, demonstrations of Jesus' victory is that his preaching is unparalleled, and it's compelling, and it's effectual. So the first part of his preaching we see is he comes to these men, these fishermen, and he tells them, follow me. But previously to that, he tells us what his message encompasses. He just uses a few words. Verse 14, take a look. The time has come. The hour is now. All the Old Testament prophets are being fulfilled in this moment. I am here. Verse 15, the kingdom is here. A new kingdom, a new community, a new people. It's an already not yet reality. We know the kingdom is here. We know that it came. We know that it's here. We know that it's coming later down the road. And then he says, repent. What's repent? Similar to John the Baptist. Turn your back on sin and do what? Believe. So you turn away from something and you turn to something. It's by putting your faith and faith alone in Christ that saves you. Even more so than the act of turning from sin. Turning from sin alone doesn't save you. Believing upon Jesus saves you. About Jesus' teaching, before we get to the disciples, take note of what it says in chapter 1, verse 22. Just jump a couple verses there. As he preached, it says, they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I like how Mark kind of just digs in to the Jewish scribes a little bit here. Jesus was a better teacher than all the other church teachers of the day. He taught with a better authority. He had a better message. If you remember, Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. He starts to interpret scripture, something the scribes could not do. Look at verse 27. They were all amazed and they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. A new teaching with authority. And they were amazed, it says in 27. and 22, it says they were astonished. Literally, the language here is this, that the, that the people were taken back, shocked by this teaching, and they were disturbed. Part of the translation here is that it disturbed them, which is true of Jesus' teaching today, by the way. For some it amazes, and for others it disturbs them. But it's never boring, is it? Now, hopefully, I know this is a hard thing to say, but hopefully you're never too bored here on Sunday. Don't confess if you are. It's not the time to do it. But hopefully, to some degree, when someone is preaching the gospel of Jesus and sharing the message of Jesus, there is a passion to them, a love to them, an amazement to them, an astonishment to them, and even to a certain degree, a part of them that is disturbed by the message that is being proclaimed. What Jesus said was hard to swallow for lots of people. 
So if you are here and you hear the message of sin and you hear the message of repentance and believe upon Jesus and you hear that God has a plan for your human sexuality and for your gender identity and you hear all of these things that God speaks to into the culture and you go, this disturbs me, it's supposed to. Because it's countercultural, counter-depressive, counter-suppressive. It brings life to people. And that's why this book moves so rapidly. Immediately, immediately, they're astonished by his preaching and his teaching. And that preaching and teaching are effectual in calling and commissioning people to the work of God. Jesus is calling fellow warriors, fellow soldiers in this battle, if you will. And when introduced to them, as he passes along this large lake, men are fishing. And what you have to understand when we see this is how important it was to be a fisherman. Well, first of all, you probably were uneducated. And because you were uneducated, you were a fisherman. And you were a fisherman because your dad was a fisherman. And your dad was a fisherman because his dad was a fisherman. And his dad was a fisherman because his dad was, I know, it's complicated. Right? This is kind of like, like the old Midwest, right? If, if you were a factory worker, your, your son's going to be a factory worker, and this is the job you have, this is the career you have, this is the family business we're talking about here. And the success of the family, the provision of the family, the provision of the kids, the provision of the grandkids, the provision for all of your family comes down to you being a fisherman. And, and thank God, here they are in Galilee, it's teeming with fish, there's lots of money to be had in the family business. And we're introduced to these guys, Simon, Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting nets into the sea. Verse 16, verse 17, Jesus says to them, follow me, follow me, and what? I will make you fishers of men. Career change. Leave the family business behind. Leave your old life behind. I have a new job for you. I have a new commission for you. And look at what it says in verse 18. Oh, there's the word again. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. One minute, they're working for the family business. This is how they provide. This is how they care for their family. This is how they care for their kids. This is a generational thing. This is how the rest of, of all of their descendants are going to be provided for. Jesus shows up just as quickly as he did in his baptism, as quickly as he went to the wilderness, as quickly as he's moved out of the wilderness, now to this great place of the, the, the lake. And, and hey, guys, guess what? Follow me. And what do they do? Okay. And they leave. This is God calling humanity to a new life and a new lifestyle. Right, this is the equivalent to, are you an electrician? Well, now you're going to light it up for Jesus. It's time to move on. It's time to, to go do the things that God has called you to do. This is why John 15, verse 16 says this, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Right, that's the reality is that Jesus is in the business of intervening into your life and bringing you to salvation because if you were left to your own devices, you would not choose Christ. That same spirit that fell upon Christ, the same spirit that drove Christ into the wilderness is the same spirit that works in this room as he did at the skate park and as he will continue to do to bring people to himself to grow his kingdom. And he says, why? That you would go and bear fruit your fruit should abide. You know, one of the things that um, I love about being a pastor and I hate about being a pastor is the word change. How many of you are fans of change? That's zero. Either that or you're too shy. You like change? Yeah. I like change, especially when, um, when I like it. <laughs> when I... <laughs> When I don't like it, I don't like it. <clears throat> and so let me just give you a couple stories here because it's, it's, it's relevant to this idea of how God, as he calls us and he's effectual in his calling, desires for us to also be fishermen of men, fishermen of souls. Like Jesus wants to use you to bring people to salvation. You know, this church has gone through a lot of changes over the years. A lot of transitions. The church has grown tremendously over the last several years. 
Uh, God's been very faithful to us. And, and along the way, we've made little changes here. One, uh, I've been here now for, I think, 17 years. Does that sound right, Allie? 18 years? 18 or 17? Wayne, do you remember? You think? We just don't remember anymore. 18 this fall? That sounds right. Uh, I was here when we put the coffee shop in. We put the coffee shop in. People, you can't sell coffee for Jesus. You know, and then we had all this tension. You remember, Wayne, people brought coffee into the sanctuary? You can't bring coffee into the sanctuary. <laughs> Some of you may feel that way today. Pharisee. <laughs> <laughs> and I just lost two people right there. <laughs> and um, Ray Hall needed to be painted one year. And someone had painted some beautiful scripture on top of the, the ceiling. Not the ceiling, but the top border. We had to paint over it. It's time to repaint. You would have thought we were burning a Bible. God's not going to bless you for doing that. We're supposed to never paint the building. We used to have this wood wall back here. So the sanctuary felt like a 1970s hot tub. <laughs> Super cool. And obviously we changed that several years ago. And, and here's one recently. Some of you will notice these first four rows are all connected right now. And the first couple of weeks it's been that way. There have been a few people that have walked down the aisle to come down here and saw that the aisle ended and turned around rejected. <laughs> and you know why it's that way? Well, it's that way for Easter, and it's that way in part for the second service. We've had to pull out almost every chair we have. Either because the community is growing or because more people are coming to Jesus. And here's the, here's the thing. I, I Just the, my heart for the gospel and my heart for, for souls, the same heart for Christ is that more people would be saved. And if more people are saved, they also need to be discipled because God uses, he uses teaching and preaching, the foolishness of teaching and preaching to bring people to Jesus. He uses this event. I'm not a perfect human being. This is the foolishness and part of the cross. It's the upside downness of the kingdom. It's just crazy when people will come and say, well, why did you make that change? Because we want these seats filled with people who need to know Jesus. And so now I've got to do a little bit of teaching and say, if you want to make some more room for us, would you come to the 830? We have a little bit more room there. Because if that doesn't work out, then we have to start praying about what does God want us to do if he wants this church to continue to grow. Do we plant a church? Maybe. Do we add a third service? Maybe. Does God provide land for us to build a bigger place for us to gather? Maybe. You know, I don't know the answer. All I know is that we need to faithfully be fishers of men. And when you are fishing for men and you're preaching the gospel and you're preaching it, the way that God has called us to preach it, without apology from the word of God, God will be faithful to continue to build his kingdom. And I believe that Christ wants to build his kingdom here in Truckee, California, here in the Tahoe Basin, in Reno, and elsewhere. God desires to bring more children into the family. And he's calling you to be a part of that. Christianity is not a sideline thing. You don't sit on the bench. You can't sit on the bench when you've tasted that God is good. And God comes and he calls in verse 17, he calls for these men a new vision for a new life. And these guys are just ordinary dudes. That's what's so great. So many of you are like, well, I'm not a theologian and I'm not a Bible person and I'm, I haven't been saved long enough. Look at these guys. Uneducated, regular fishermen. One commentator says, thankfully, oops, let this next one here, there is no prerequisite to following Jesus. This is a grace call. He does not tell them to improve their moral character or their social acceptability. Jesus finds them where they are. He simply calls. In effect, come, come as you are, but come, you must come right now. They're to follow, and immediately in faith, this was a radical call for those fishermen and it's no less radical for us today, is it? But the deal is, is you get to follow. As becoming a fisherman, you get to follow the greatest leader the world has ever seen. 
You get to follow the general marching into battle. He is the Christ. He is the one. Just in, just in chapter one alone, this is what we're told of Jesus by, by highlight and way of reminder. He is the son of God, the Lord, the mighty one, the worthy one, the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit, the anointed one, the beloved son, the one who pleases God, the one who brings the kingdom of God, the astonishing teacher, the one with authority, the holy one of God. Come on, who else do you want to follow? You want to follow the culture? You don't want to follow politicians? You got to follow Jesus. The kingdom has come near because the kingdom is here. And the kingdom demands a new mission that we would make that reality of salvation possible to those who need it. His preaching is effectual, it's astonishing, it's disturbing. But just to shock people even more so, he then begins to show us his miraculous, infallible, miraculous proofs that he and he alone is Jesus, that he he alone is the Christ, he is the Son of God. Some people aren't into church, right? Whenever I talk about church building and stuff like that, people get kind of weird. It's almost like we know it's a reality, but we don't talk about the reality, that like we need a building to meet in. And this is a historical reality for God's Christians. Something happens beautiful, beautifully beautiful, in the assembly and the gathering of God's people. It's one of the reasons why, after a certain amount of time, our church just simply said, we will not abandon the beautiful, glorious, spirit-filled gathering of the saints. We will not socially isolate. We will not cause you to be alone in your homes. We must gather. That has been the practice of God's people for centuries. And here we see Jesus, who again is fulfilling prophecy, as it says that the Christ will show up in the temple, which he did at 12 years old, teaching the Pharisees and Sadducees at 12. And here he comes to Capernaum, verse 21. Capernaum is a populous port city filled with Jews, Roman soldiers, and Roman officials. And immediately on the Sabbath... He entered the synagogue. Do you see it? The synagogue. This is the place of gathering. And at this place of gathering, Jesus begins to teach. There it's the part where we see that they're astonished. As they're astonished, as he's teaching, as he's preaching, verse 23, the demonic arises. An unclean spirit cries out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. Now, I know it doesn't happen too often in our church, but this is the equivalent of someone walking into the room, hearing the message of Christ. The demon manifests himself. Jesus speaks out. He mutes the word that it's used here. He muzzles the demon. And he casts the demon out. The language that's used, that the demon uses for Jesus, if you take note, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 24, the Holy One of God. In chapter 3, verse 11, another demon will call him the Son of God. And in chapter 5, verse 7, the son of the most high God. This is in contrast. Again, we have to go through this rapidly, but then Jesus cleanses a leper in verse 40. Jesus shows he has power over the spiritual realm and also the physical realm. He cares about your spiritual state, and he cares deeply also about your physical state and your physical hurts and pains. Upon the healing of those ordinary sick individuals, in contrast to what the demons state, they call Jesus Lord, Teacher, Son of David, and Master. Now, I know it's not set before you, but if you can kind of put it in your mind and contrast these and look up the original wording of these, the language Holy One of God, Son of God, Son of the Most High God used by demons is a much higher view of who God is than the normal sick person. Lord, teacher, good teacher, son of David, prophet. What is this teaching us? Devils usually have a higher view of the Son of God than sinners. Or another way to say it, demons definitely know who Jesus is. There is no questioning his authority. They know his identity. And notice they even know the outcome of their life. He says, the demon says, have you come? Is the hour here where you will destroy us? They know that Jesus is going to be victorious over them. They know that they will be defeated. They know that their numbers are short. They're just trying to drag as many people down with them as they can. And even though men throughout this gospel 
struggle to understand what the demons already knew, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is always far more compassionate with sinners than he is devils. He's compassionate with your lack of understanding. He's compassionate with your disease. He's compassionate with your struggles because he wants you to know that he has overcome all of those things on your behalf. He knows you can't do it. He knows I can't do it. This is why the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53.4 is so important. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Church, life's a battle. It moves quick. But take heart in the one who's overcome the world. He has cut the head of Satan right off. The power of sin is no longer hanging or looming over you. It cannot defeat you. It cannot crush you. It's only a transition to heaven itself. Why put your faith in anything other than this great general that is Christ? The one who's declared war on the evil empire that you and I cannot fight alone. But Jesus has defeated the enemy. May we take heart and courage in a culture that's ever growing dim that Jesus has surely healed us of all of our pain. And if you're here this morning and you want that freedom, you want to experience that relationship with Christ, don't hesitate to ask myself or any of these individuals on the stage or anybody walking around with a little orange lanyard because Christ wants to call you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. He wants to give you his spirit that you would no longer walk in defeat. Imagine, imagine what it would look like if you lived life knowing that the war of life has already been victorious. Let's pray. Lord, as the rabbis once taught, that it was as difficult to heal a leper as it was to raise the dead. Lord, we take heart that though both of those things are impossible for man, neither of them are a problem for God's only begotten son. Thank you, Lord, for working the greatest miracle of all, which is the reality, Lord, that we need to be born again. Your spirit has made that possible. We cannot be saved by effort. We cannot be saved by might. We are only saved by the grace and grace of God alone. We thank you that you are compassionate. We thank you that you are understanding. More than anything, we thank you that you are victorious. Now we worship you and celebrate you for that victory. In Jesus' name. Hey, friends, let's stand together.